I am so tired of talking about woke culture. By now, you have heard this word so many times, but so often no one can define it. Konstantin Kitson, a Russian-born, British-based comedian, had had enough of it, though. We have embraced freedom. We have maintained law and order. We have protected the rights of parents. We have respected our taxpayers, and we reject woke ideology. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. The governor of Florida declared that his state is where the word goes to die. But what does it really mean, the word? Stay tuned and learn about how this word woke is a merely shorthand for a new moral culture a culture which ascribes value to being a victim and demerits for being an oppressor. This is from Black Power to Black Trauma, a pause series about phantom politics and its offshoot, Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. Woke. You've heard this word and probably have associated it with certain ideas and behavior, particularly describing those who reside on the left side of America's social and political spectrum. Woke has now become a meaningless as certain words such as privilege or white supremacy used by the left. Today, however, conservatives use it to describe anything that they don't like, as in the case of Ron DeSantis. And if woke had been current in 2016, Donald Trump would have used it instead of political correctness. But what are people referring to when they use the word? What they are attempting to describe is a new moral culture that recently sprouted up on the cultural and political scenes. These new sensibilities rose on college campuses and do reflect to some degree leftist sentiments. But these new sensibilities represent a new moral culture that ascribes value to being a victim and demerits for being an oppressor. This new moral culture is the sort in which the theoretical trope of trauma emerged from. So let's begin with the basics. What is a moral culture? Moral culture is just a a shorthand term that Bradley Campbell and I use to describe broad patterns of moral conflict and ways of handling conflict. Jason Manning is a professor of sociology at West Virginia University. He's a co-author, along with Bradley Campbell, of The Rise of Victimhood Culture. In their book, they do not use, I repeat, do not use the term woke. However, in their observation and writing, they describe in great detail a new moral culture in which the shorthand term has become a certain word. So if you study human behavior across different settings and societies, you'll see some patterns in the kind of things people take offense to, the kind of things they rank as being the most severe sorts of offense, the things they're most sensitive about. 
and in their preferred or approved ways of handling offenses when they happen. So moral culture is just a way of divvying that up really roughly. And we always got to add the caveat that when we talk about X, Y, or Z moral culture, you could always, you know, uh, define things more granularly, even within the same moral culture, not every person or conflict's going to be the same. But you can find these broad patterns. In order to understand this new moral culture, one has to understand what sociologists have described as previous ones, those with honor and dignity. The distinction between honor and dignity is already something recognized in psychology and anthropology and history. Honor cultures are ones where there's a strong sensitivity to slight and a sensitivity to shame. And people are very concerned with maintaining their public reputation. And that public reputation revolves especially, not only, but especially around physical toughness, bravery, willingness to fight back. You see it in older times, especially in things like the duels that the aristocrats used to fight when their honor was besmirched. Aristocrat A insults aristocrat B, they have to fight a duel to settle it. I mean, we had uh, Alexander Hamilton killed in a duel because someone, you know, he, he insulted Aaron Burr, Aaron Burr challenged him to a duel. He felt he had to fight to protect his honor mm -hmm. or else he would be shamed as a coward. The other culture that's usually juxtaposed, that's what they call dignity culture. So, and it's one of those things that's always, you know, you define your own culture maybe by reference to other people's because otherwise yours would be invisible to you. But you had sociologists and historians writing in the middle 20th century, looking back at the dueling of the old elites and saying, this seems so alien to us. And if someone accused me, a college professor, of you know not having any honor, I'd just like, shrug and walk off because whatever, I know I'm all right. I know my own worth. And so the idea was that people in a dignity culture uh, don't concern themselves with honor so much because they believe in the inherent dignity of each individual, which is not so dependent on reputation. Mm -hmm. And so there's generally, uh, because there's less concern with shame and reputation, people are less sensitive to slight. They can afford to kind of let insults slide off them mm -hmm. or maybe respond in a lesser degree just by saying, well, no, that accusation's not right. Uh, let me give you the evidence that it's not right. And so you have less emphasis on being, you know, kind of a chip on your shoulder, being willing to fight back. Victim culture also responds to slights, but in a very different way. That's a term Campbell and I came up with to describe a pattern of behaviors we thought we were noticing, particularly on modern college and university campuses. Mm -hmm. And here again, you could always quibble about where to draw lines or how precisely to divvy things up. But around 2013, 2014. What led them to study this was an event that happened at Oberlin College. We noticed a couple of things. Um, for example, at Oberlin College, there was a big panic involving a sighting of a KKK Klansman walking across campus. And it's like, wait, what? At an elite liberal arts school, a place with a progressive reputation? I know there's still clan dens out there, but this does not seem very plausible at this place. And it turned out it was just a person wearing a towel, you know, wrapped up in a towel on their way uh, from taking a bath or something like that. And we're like, okay, that's a little bit weird how people immediately jump to that conclusion at this place where you'd least expect that sort of thing to happen. But it wasn't merely the reporting of what someone mistakenly saw as Ku Klux Klan activity. 
but an actual website that listed microaggressions. And as we were looking at that, we noticed um, they had a, a website called Oberlin Microaggressions, where people were complaining about verbal slights they'd experienced. The idea was that everyone's probably familiar with the, the term nowadays. At the time, we weren't. It's first we heard of it. But the idea that these, these um, small, maybe inadvertent verbal slights that are oppressing people. And we looked at the like website listing these complaints, like the professor said she you know, wanted her kids to have blue eyes, or uh, someone complained, like a, a Hispanic student complained about a fellow student describing football as, or soccer, as we would call it in the States, as, as football, the Spanish term for it. And we we're like, well, this is interesting that there's a website listing these complaints that to us seem kind of minor and usually if they were wrong just a faux pas maybe mm -hmm. and calling them a kind of aggression and drawing attention to them and we kind of thought of that in connection to things like the the Klansman scare and so some other stuff we saw like people committing hoaxes of hate crimes on campuses like spray painting racial slurs but they weren't like white races doing it. it was it was kids who were themselves progressives and wanted to draw attention to racism and so we started thinking about things we saw in common across all of these behaviors. This led them to start noting the characteristics of victimhood culture, particularly in regard to slights and the occasional faux pas, mere bumping into another, how they had been upgraded to microaggression. We defined a victimhood culture as one in which there's a high sensitivity to slights, particularly against um, marginalized or oppressed groups, one in which people tend to handle their complaints um, or handle their grievances by complaining, particularly to authorities, but often to the general public, kind of with an eye to moving the authorities, mm -hmm. and in which there were incentives to emphasize or advertise, or some cases even fabricate, instances of victimization. Um, of oneself or one's allies or people one is trying to help, such as by calling a verbal faux pas an instance of aggression or by having a hate crime hoax or by being quick to believe, yes, here in this progressive liberal institution, there's hooded KKK guys walking around. However, what they also noted was how some students overreacted to Donald Trump being elected president. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of reasons that election would be controversial. A lot of people wouldn't right. be happy with the outcome. So that's not that weird. But we noticed in the reactions, yeah, people, um, hey, there were some, I thought, pretty obviously exaggerated ideas about the kind of bad it would be. Like, I can maybe agree with you on the undesirability of it. But I, the idea that we were one step away from, a, you know, slavery coming back or something didn't seem realistic. And but people talking about being traumatized, uh, universities having crying rooms for people to go and cry, and people, um, you know, getting a uh, saying, you know, we're too we're too upset to go to classes now. Classes need to be canceled. We need therapeutic services. That seemed to be a kind of emphasis on fragility, a kind of seeing the self is damaged by. I mean, Elections have been happening forever, and this is not even the most, uh, you know, consequential one we've had in, in American history. Mm -hmm. it, it just seemed very strange that 20-something-year-old people would be emphasizing their own vulnerability to that degree and claiming that degree of harm that therapy and special services were needed. 
and that they would turn to a bureaucratic administration for that rather than let's go drink in with my friends or whatever things you might think people would do to handle bad news. That kind of fragility also echoes the research that Jonathan Hay and Greg Lukianoff wrote about in The Coddling of the American Mind. They found that by the early aughts, the concept of trauma within parts of the therapeutic community had crept down so far that it included anything experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful, with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, or spiritual well-being. The subjective experience of harm became definitional in assessing trauma. As a result, the word trauma became much more widely used, not just by mental health professionals, but by their clients and patients, including an increasing number of college students. Manning and his partner also noticed the meaning of certain words and ideas shifted within this new moral culture via something called concept creep. So Nick Haslin came up with that. But it's the idea that concepts um, tend to get stretched over time. And specifically, it, the phenomena he was talking about was concepts relating to negative experiences, to harm, tend to get stretched so that a, a concept that before referred to something quite extreme and unusual gets stretched to where it refers to a much wider array of more ordinary things. So more and more people say, could it can claim to have trauma, which used to be something limited to like war veterans and uh, rape mm -hmm. victims and things like that. And it kind of gets expanded to things where, you know, you, uh, we've seen cases of students on campuses, for example, saying like a picture or a statue they didn't like traumatized them. Or uh, one, one student group even used the word trauma very casually next to the word boredom to say like reading, you know, white European authors inflicts trauma and boredom upon us. Well, trauma and boredom, they don't seem to be in the same category traditionally, but now this word that tended to mean something very severe has become sort of diluted. And as we argue that the push or the incentives or the culture that encourages people to advertise or emphasize victimization encourages them to stretch concepts in that way. So it's not that something annoyed me, uh, pissed me off. It's that it traumatized me. It's that it abused me, that it oppressed me. So the more severe term becomes the preferred, preferred term because that's what mobilizes authoritative actors to take one side. This new culture pushes victimization by expanding words such as harm, vulnerable, trauma, safety. I mean, that, as we point to in the book, is a potential problem with inflating terms in that way. It's just like inflating a currency. After a while, you devalue it. Um, you start telling me that, you know, um, reading a book you don't like or having an ugly picture on my wall. I'm not talking like a swastika. I mean, just like art mm -hmm. you think is ugly is literal violence or that having like a statue of Thomas Jefferson up at William and Mary is violence. It's like, well, what's not at this point? And people's like it, it part of the reason there is a incentive to use those more extreme terms is because people do perk up and notice them uh, what's the line from jaws you say barracuda people say oh what you say shark you've got a panic you say rude you say um 
you know, a faux pas, people say, oh, okay, you say in violence, oppression, mm-hmm. uh, trauma, people pay attention until they don't, if you keep diluting the meaning of the term, you know. Um, when white supremacy conjures images of people actually going out and, you know, like the KKK marching or people enforcing the, the Jim Crow laws, that's a very mm-hmm. strong image. It's like, oh, this is clearly evil. Uh, mm-hmm. When it means like math, people have used that term for math, that then it becomes you're diluting the term. I'm no longer associating it with the thing that we all agreed I thought was evil. Um, mm-hmm. Now we're associated with other things. So people might start drowning, you know, tuning you out when you claim about it. It's, it's, it's sort of um, analogous to that boy who cried wolf story. The term microaggression is another example of concept creep. Under this rubric, the attention doesn't matter and nearly everything can be interpreted as a form of low-level aggression. Um, But it really didn't seem to catch on broadly until around the time uh, Campbell and I noticed it, around 2013, 2014. And since then, it's just blown up. Uh If if it's used less nowadays, it's just because, you know, it's more assumed and people have specific names for specific kinds of microaggression. Right. Yeah, it's like baked into university policies now in some places. There's systems for reporting people for them. It, I've seen government contracts between like union union employees mm-hmm. in the state where that's part of it. Uh, I had a relative who worked at NASA. They had trainings on on microaggressions at NASA. I mean, the idea is just that it's a verbal slight against a minority. The, and the idea is that these things cumulatively, you know, they're part of the hassle of being a minority um, that every now and again, people say stupid stuff that could offend you they don't understand mm-hmm. your situation and where you're coming from which makes sense as far as it goes we just found it odd that the term aggression was being used because that's here again a term we associate with typically more severe kinds of offenses are you trying to hurt somebody it is, mm-hmm. has a connotation of intentionality mm-hmm. and hostility but a lot of the things people cite as that are just at worst faux pas like a slip of the tongue or oh sorry i didn't realize uh, i mispronounced mm-hmm. your name might be a microaggression but in a global world where you meet foreigners all the time, you're going to mispronounce unfamiliar names. It should be yeah. part of the friction of human interaction that you apologize and do it right after that. Mm-hmm. So the idea of classifying it as an aggression and then like the idea that people were cataloging these things, that they were creating systems to report these things. That's really what struck us as, as interesting. Not the idea that there's small offenses in everyday life, because of course there are, but that they mm-hmm. deserve to be classified as a by a fairly severe sounding term and that they deserve this amount of attention and official attention at that attention by authority figures. And so we saw that as part of this culture of emphasizing sensitivity to slight training people to recognize that things maybe they didn't even think were offensive to themselves actually are. Yes, you should be offended and you should report this to the authorities. We thought that was part of this new cultural shift. The two sociologists noted that this new moral culture was mostly prevalent in certain elite environments. Victimhood culture is very much in modern America an elite culture. And it sounds contradictory because it is a culture of supporting the downtrodden or claiming to be part of the downtrodden. But yeah, you don't hear people in the hollers of West Virginia talking like this. You don't hear people in, in downtown Newport News talking like this. Uh, it's very much something that came out of these uh, very selective, very wealthy liberal arts schools, the Ivy Leagues, and it's kind of trickled down through there. So the explanation, as far as we have one, is that 
in part, um, people in these settings, whatever their, you know, ethnic background, I mean, you're usually rich if you're there. So there's sort of a rough equality. Uh, not everybody's equally well off. And I know there's exceptions and right. scholarship kids. It, it's kind of within a broad social stratum. People are, and, and when you have a kind of rough equality, whether at the top or at the bottom, you do get a little bit more sensitivity to status differences between people. People kind of policing small differences amongst themselves. What's the, mm-hmm. the Freud phrase, narcissism with small differences? So you get that, but also you get at these elite schools, that's the places where the swelling of the bureaucracy happened first and fastest. If you look at like student to administrator ratios, it seems mm-hmm. like at the more elite schools, there's way more administrators per student. Mm-hmm. And you see a general pattern in conflict or social control or whatever you want to call it, where mm-hmm. authority figures are a bit more responsive to the elites. I ventured the notion that some of this might be interclass competition. It's not something we wrote about in our work, Campbell and I, but it is mm-hmm. something I've thought, okay. um, especially because after I, we published that book, I got a little bit into the work of Peter Turkin, who talks about the role of intra-elite competition in driving political instability. And the idea is, you know, you've got all these educated people lined up for sinecures or sons of aristocrats mm-hmm. or whatever, depending on the time period. And mm-hmm. when the number of those uh, outstrips the number of offices to be held, they start getting very intense in their competition for those mm-hmm. positions and finding ways to mobilize to you know, vote others off the island. And so it's occurred to me we could maybe model some of the uh, of the great awakening, if you want to call it that, as a intra-elite phenomenon of, you know, there's only so many professorships and journalistic uh, positions to go around, which might be why some people are so eager, eager to denounce others. You know, I haven't like done like the survey data to quantify this, but this does seem to be something that is a professional class phenomenon more than a working class one. This is an export from the academy whose graduates become lawyers, doctors, activists, journalists, writers, media heads, and professors. This new culture draws perimeters around specific categories, those who have grace and those with original sin. You see this countervailing tendency where it's not evenly applied. So if somebody is designated as being in a protected category, then you start defining like, well, racism uh, by definition is only when whites do it. Mm -hmm. Sexism by definition is only when men do it. And uh, censorship by definition is only if people in power do it. Uh, Various things that might be considered bad or offensive now have the definition sort of put on a partisan angle where like, group I support cannot be guilty uh, versus like the all whites are racist inherently thing group I uh, am against is always guilty inherently follows the predicted contour of people um, emphasizing the badness of privileged people and groups and and the moral deservingness of victimized or marginalized people and groups. But Mm -hmm. also you see, I think, the obvious moral and logical issues with it. This leads to what Manny calls moral emaciation. Campbell and I, in one of our, I think it was an interview we did with Claire Lemon, we talked about um, this concept, moral emaciation, we called it, which is just a fancy word for sometimes in some conditions, it seems like people's concepts for making moral judgments get extremely narrowed. Hmm. And you might think of a couple different examples, like maybe in a very extremely religious setting, like everything becomes, uh, is that 
act Christian or unchristian. And mm-hmm. like, they can't just say like, okay, that was rude or that was ugly. Um, mm-hmm. Or like in maybe like a revolutionary situation, like in Soviet Union, everything's either communist or capitalist. That's like your only categories. Okay. And so we, we kind of thought maybe we see some of the same thing happening with um, like racist or, or, or white supremacist and moral and aesthetic judgments in parts of modern society where like you see something like it could be an ugly statue on a campus not even like a political statue like a picture like a statue of uh, washington or something but like there was a statue on one campus is just called the sleepwalker it was a man in his underwear and so instead of saying this thing's ugly or creepy people said it's traumatizing us because it's enforcing rape culture and uh, Mm -hmm. sexist and all this so it's like Mm -hmm. every every judgment has to become part in, in one of those terms, a sexist or a racist or something like that. You can't just say that's obnoxious or I don't like it or that dude was an asshole. Given what we know now, is victimhood culture, woke culture? I'd say the concepts overlap. This is one thing Campbell and I have acknowledged, like there's a ton of different terms out there to try to capture our current moment in society. Mm-hmm. And we've seen things floated like uh, wokeness is probably the most common one nowadays. Like even I catch mm-hmm. myself using it. And but there's also people talk about safety culture, cancel mm-hmm. culture. Uh, Wesley Yang talks about successor ideologies, and just mm-hmm. a bunch of others, which makes me think, I mean, aside from the fact that there's various intellectual incentives to coin new terms, people really are noticing that something's changed mm-hmm. in our society and they're trying to get a handle on it. Um, and I think what we talk about as victimhood culture overlaps a lot with other concepts. They all tend to emphasize different points. The, the cancel culture emphasizes the punishments people get, usually from authorities by being fired or, you know, uh, reprimanded when people complain. Safety culture emphasizes the uh, degree to which people talk about their fragility and trauma and need of protection when they're making their complaints and beseeching authorities. But uh I think they're all, they more or less overlap with what we talk about. We just emphasize, we emphasize the moral conflicts involved in it and the fact that people are having grievances and they're expressing them in certain ways. As described by Jason Manning, victimhood culture began at elite colleges and university campuses across the United States. As graduates channel certain victimhood values back into society, creating a feedback loop. Trauma, for instance, as well as being used as a means to identify the deep wounds of racism, is now a talking point for college essays. However, it may be undermining the very people it seeks to award a specific victim status. When I was 10, my family and I packed up our entire lives into large suitcases and dragged them across the Pacific to a foreign land called Canada. Tina Young at a TED Talk explaining the rise of the trauma essay. Now, this is a story that I don't have copyright claim over. It's one that continues to be regurgitated by immigrant kids all across the country to be served on a silver platter to prestigious universities who chew these stories and spit out acceptance letters in return. The contents of the story may change. Instead of a difficult immigration experience, it might be the death of a loved one, a chronic illness, or a racist encounter. But what remains constant is the moral. A bad thing happened to me, but it made me a good person. This is part of the larger phenomenon that I'm here to talk about today. The overwhelming pressure being put 
on high school students to write about their deepest traumas in their college applications, with the hopes that they seem resilient and interesting enough to be given a spot. And she was talking about her experience as an immigrant student in Canada. The use of trauma as a component of victimhood culture has become universal in countries known as the Five Eyes, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States. It's the World Wide Woke. I want to thank Jason Manning for taking the time to talk to me in early 2023. Tina Young, courtesy of TED Talks. This has been From Black Power to Black Trauma. I'm Norman Kelly. Thank you for listening.